Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. Software engineer Molly White will talk about crypto. And in the reprise of an interview from October 2020, the historian Catherine Ballou will talk about white power. There's been a bit of unpleasantness in the cryptocurrency market lately. Most notably, TerraUSD, a coin that was supposed to maintain a stable value of a dollar, crashed over the last 10 days and is now worth less than a dime. Bitcoin, the biggest of the cryptos, has lost almost 40% of its value since March. What are these things all about? To explore that, we're joined by Molly White. She's a software engineer who keeps two blogs, mollywhite.net, and Web3 is going just great, the first more polite than the second. The ruder one is a catalog of scams, implosions, and other ugly stuff from the world of crypto, broadly defined, which includes spin-offs like NFTs and Web3, a much-hyped thing with no rigorous definition yet. We hear lots about crypto world, but there's so much we don't know about it. How big it is, who the players are, how concentrated the ownership is, how the various coins are managed or backed, if at all, and how deeply it's spread into the broader financial system, which would determine how much of a risk it presents to innocent bystanders. All of these currencies, and it's not clear that's the right word to describe them, have come out of nowhere. One day, their creators pronounced their newly minted units to be valuable, and millions of people have believed them. Some would say that government currencies are the same. They're not backed by anything but the government's word, though, first, governments are a lot more substantial and powerful than hucksters that come out of nowhere. The creator of Bitcoin, who goes by the nom d'argent, Satoshi Nakamoto, is still completely unknown 14 years after its debut. And two, you can pay your taxes and buy valuable things with dollars and the rest, which you can't say about crypto. Those are some of the things we'll explore with Molly White. As I was about to record this, I saw an item in her blog, web3isgoinggreat.com, reporting on the theft of over half a million dollars in feminist metaverse coins. What is the feminist metaverse, you might ask? It's an attempt to achieve gender equity in the virtual world. As for the real world, well, that's still more of a challenge. But that's the crypto world for you. Dodgy coins, loopy foundations. Here's Molly White. Before we talk about um, the details, uh, you know, I've been studying financial markets, writing about them, talking about them for decades. Uh, and I look at the crypto world and I see a staggering proliferation of jargon that's accumulated in a rather short period of time. I suppose you could say the same about conventional finance, and I'm just familiar with it. But it sometimes has the feel of a bit of a con or a cult. Is that an unfair, uh, unfair sensation? I don't think so. I think there is a very big in-group lingo. And if you don't know the lingo, then you sort of can't be a part of the cool kids club, you know? It has become this very insular culture. A question I've been asking myself for eight years since I wrote uh, about crypto for The Nation magazine. What is the problem that crypto and everything else associated with it, it aims to solve? It definitely depends a little bit who you ask. Some people will say it's supposed to place, you know, traditional finance and banking and be a total new way of doing things without sort of government intervention. Other people see it as sort of a side thing to the traditional banking system. Some people see it as a speculative asset where you can get rich quick. It really depends, I would say, who you ask. What is wrong with the conventional banking system that crypto can fix? 
Well, I'm probably the wrong person to make that argument, but I mean, a lot of people sort of see large fees, they see laws that they don't agree with, they see banks sort of acting out of their own volition to prevent people from interacting with the traditional financial system in some ways. They see the lack of access to banking in general as a problem that they think crypto can solve. Uh, There's kind of a long list of arguments that you could make. But just in the last few days, we've seen the collapse of that Luna Terra complex. Nobody has lost money on a bank deposit since, I think, like 1933. The security of one's money is really quite at risk from that sort of thing, but also repeated scams, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there is no consumer protection like there would be in the traditional United States banking system. So some people were even talking about treating the Terra USD stablecoin as a bank account, basically, to, to store their money as if it was a savings account. And they didn't really take into account the possibility that something could go wrong with that project and they could lose all that money. Uh, And there is no, again, consumer protection. So they don't have FDIC insurance with those crypto wallets like they would if they had put that money into a traditional savings account. You mentioned uh, government regulation, government intervention, but the governance of these, what do we call them, assets, units, whatever, is very murky. Who controls them? Depends, again, which one you're talking about. A lot of them are at least ostensibly decentralized, meaning that they aren't controlled by a singular entity. But the way that power is distributed in these stable or in these uh, cryptocurrencies can be very difficult to track, and it can actually be a lot more centralized than uh, I think a lot of people realize. So there are sort of enormous holders of these assets who can exert a lot of control. There is also a lot of centralization around the mining of things like Bitcoin or Ethereum, where uh, a large portion of that work is being done by a fairly small number of groups that can't necessarily trust not to work against the system. Decentralization is touted as one of the virtues of the system. How true is that? How decentralized are they? It's really not very true in practice. The Bitcoin ideology sort of began with this idea that anyone with a computer could mine Bitcoin. And so it was sort of one computer, one vote was the idea. But these days, the average computer can't mine Bitcoin. Uh, It's only extremely specialized hardware that uh, is fairly difficult for the average person to come across and to to actually use uh, that can do that. And the same, you know, the same issue has been holding true in other cryptocurrencies as well, where a lot of the mining is very centralized. Even ignoring the mining side of things, the actual decision making around what happens in the network is also very centralized. So decisions around changes that are being made to protocols um, are often being controlled by a really small number of people. And in the projects where they do try to ostensibly decentralize the governance, it's often done in a way where voting is distributed according to how many tokens you hold, which means only the very wealthy people have the power to influence those decisions. And what information we have suggests that the, that ownership is extremely concentrated, more than the, uh, <laughs> the straight world. Absolutely. Yes. Bitcoin especially is very, very concentrated into a very small number of wallets. When we had that crisis in the Luna Terra system over the last uh, week or so, who managed the crisis? Do we know what the procedures were? Who was making decisions? Was it all supposed to be done by the algorithm or is it a human intervention? How did it all work? 
the idea was the algorithm should have maintained the price of TerraUSD at $1, but as you saw, that absolutely did not happen. And so there was a central group called Luna Foundation Guard that held reserves, mostly in Bitcoin, but they had uh, other cryptocurrencies as well, that, you know, the idea was that if something like this ever happened, they could deploy those reserves to basically buy more UST and stabilize the price. But there was kind of a, a confusing situation that happened there where everyone could see that Luna Foundation Guard had moved the crypto and they had said that they were going to be deploying it to try to stabilize the price. But there was no real way to track what they did with it once they moved it into an exchange. There were a handful of days where sort of no one really knew at all what had happened to that those reserves. And then I think today or yesterday, they published an accounting of what they did with it, although we sort of have to take them at their word at this stage because there hasn't been an external audit, where basically they exchanged those Bitcoin for UST to try to prop up the price. But they haven't said who they made those exchanges with. Um, and a handful of people are pretty annoyed that um, they basically gave exit liquidity to a handful of whales, basically, who held an enormous amount of UST, who were able to trade it out for Bitcoin when uh, the average retail investor was having a very difficult time um, selling off their UST if that's what they wanted to do. Whales being big holders. Right. Or in some cases, um, organizations that held a large amount, so not necessarily an individual. That was supposed to be backed by an algorithm, but we have other stable coins, which are supposedly backed by um, real assets, dollars or slightly more on real Bitcoin. But do we actually know that? None of this stuff is audited or really transparent in the way an SEC um, regulated uh, instrument would be. Right. So the largest stable coin that there is today is called Tether. And it, it used to claim that its assets were backed one to one by real US dollars. It has since backed off on those claims somewhat ever since um, they were actually sort of taken to account for them and they couldn't really defend those claims. But they've never actually released any audits or had any audits done, as far as we can tell, to confirm that they have the reserves that they say they do. So everyone is sort of just taking them on faith at this stage that they have the assets that they claim, despite the fact that they have lied about that in the past. And after uh, over the last week or 10 days, I would imagine people's faith in things uh, is somewhat shaken. Absolutely. I mean, we've been seeing some pretty huge sell-offs of Tether recently, um, where it looks like people are taking their money out of that stablecoin, um, likely because their faith has been shaken in it. So far, you know, people have been able to cash out because, you know, Tether has at least some reserves, uh, but there's sort of no telling how many people will continue to be able to cash out if that's what people continue to do. We're back in the 19th century, competing monies with no certain backing, uh, and that all ended rather badly. Has anybody ever think about that precedent? Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of you know critics have compared it to wildcat banking and and you know sort of historical events that looked very very similar. And you know, it's it's a little bit bizarre to see history repeating itself so closely when you know with the sort of argument that well this time it'll be different because I guess there's computers involved or something. Yeah, there's something about there being computers involved that caused people not to think clearly, it seems sometimes. I mean, they're not looking at the social relations or the governance structures or anything like that. They just say, oh, technology. Yeah, I think people hear the word algorithm and they sort of assume that it, it, it will just work, you know, when in reality, algorithms could be terrible and completely flawed. And, and in some cases, they've been shown to be such as with UST. Um, something like a stable coin, 
uh, is supposed to hold the value of a dollar. What does it add that holding that actual currency can't do? It's used by some people in the crypto space to sort of uh, hedge against the volatility of crypto. So you'll see, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum have these really wild swings. And so some people will take their money out and put it into stable coins if they want, you know, some portion of their assets to be somewhat more stable. Um, it's also used heavily as sort of a unit of account to compare against because it is sort of denominated in the same way. Um, so you'll often see instead of uh, the value of Bitcoin being denominated in U.S. dollars, you'll see it denominated in tethers um, because that's sort of the equivalent version in the crypto world. But tether is supposed to be worth a dollar. So what's the point of the middleman? It's the unit of exchange that can be widely used in the crypto ecosystem. So you can't necessarily trade one U.S. dollar for one Bitcoin on a lot of exchanges, but you can trade one tether for a for some Bitcoin on an exchange. And so, you know, it's sort of the the digital equivalent of the dollar, which doesn't currently really exist in a equivalent way with fiat currency. Although there have been conversations around digital cash and things like that with the government getting involved, but so far nothing on that front. Which touches on another issue. Um, it's not easy to get in and out of these things, right? Um, setting up a wallet isn't simple uh, if you have a large amount of money to transfer and getting out can be even harder. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so in order to get your money into crypto, you have to set up a wallet on an exchange and, you know, trade your cash for crypto. That's often a lot easier than doing it in re in the reverse. Cashing out can be even more difficult, especially if your currency has been quote unquote tainted. Um, some exchanges consider, you know, some actions that you've done with crypto to be suspicious and they worry about providing you with real currency in exchange if they think that you might be involved in something shady. And we've seen a handful of exchanges basically deny people withdrawals because of that. Well, then banks might look askance at money uh, if it's a, you know, more than a trivial amount uh, because they don't know whether it's gained cleanly, right? That, that's a real challenge if you want to move a fairly large amount of, uh, of crypto. Right. Yeah. And, you know, these exchanges are supposed to comply with anti-money laundering laws and, and things like that. Um, and most of the big ones do. Um, but the problem is that it can be a little bit difficult to determine concretely if crypto has been used in sort of nefarious ways or not. And so there are some people who get sort of their collateral damage sometimes if they've used crypto that has gone through like a cryptocurrency mixer, which is sometimes used for criminal purposes, but is sometimes used for completely genuine ones as well. It's kind of a difficult situation where once you've put money in, you can't always, uh, you can't always guarantee that you'll be able to get it out easily, especially for larger amounts. I'm speaking with the software engineer and crypto critic Molly White. So what is this stuff? Is it a security, a speculative um, instrument? It really fails the normal tests of money. It's not a unit of account, really. You can't buy much with it. It's extremely volatile, so it'd be kind of weird to trust your paycheck to it. What exactly is cryptocurrency? I mean, I consider it to be a speculative asset. I do think there is a strong argument that it is a security. Um, and I agree with you that it is not a reasonable currency. It does not work well as a currency, despite the name. But it does um, excite an incredible degree of enthusiasm and loyalty among its fans. I mean, if you say anything remotely critical of it, you're, you're, you're roundly denounced. Right. 
get-rich-quick schemes have always been enormously appealing to some people, at least. And, you know, I think a lot of people see crypto as the potential answer to a difficult financial situation or just to make a ton of money. And so people are very excited about that. And there is this enormous incentive to be hyper positive about it and not to criticize it by the people who who hold it because, you know, any criticism or doubt about their cryptocurrency that they've invested in can cause, you know, a, a direct negative reaction in its price. And so people are very much financially incentivized to be overly positive all the time in the face of even, you know, ridiculous actions on behalf of people who are controlling the cryptocurrencies or who are, you know, affecting their prices in any way. On your website, you have a grift counter in the lower right corner. It's approaching about 9.6 billion now. Where does a lot of money go? What kind of scams are, uh, are racking it up? There's a very wide array of scams happening in the crypto space. Some people are outright creating frauds where they encourage people to invest their money into, you know, these various financial schemes or even, you know, NFT projects and various other things, and then just running away with the money, you know, the most sort of obvious type of scam. But we're also seeing a lot of things like pump and dumps, which is where influencers or other people who have a lot of clout basically are able to talk up the price of these tokens. And because they're so volatile and they're so easy influenced by large numbers of people buying in, they can cause them to go quite high in value. And then they sell off all these tokens that they've been holding, which causes the price to plummet again, but tends to earn the influencer and the people who are sort of in on the, the pump and up scheme quite a lot of money. And then there's also just hacks that are happening. You know, the security in this space has been pretty terrible across the board. And it's difficult, you know, from the software engineering side to write software that is completely bug free. And yet that's sort of what has to happen in in crypto for these things to work properly. And so when that doesn't happen, you know, we've seen hackers and and various other attackers who are able to exploit some of these projects for just enormous amounts of money. Now, of course, you have similar problems with banking, which is very heavily computerized. And worldwide banking is a giant computer network. Yet they don't really have many of those problems. Is it just because that's a more mature business? Or um, is there something particularly vulnerable about crypto? I think it's kind of a combination of a lot of things. So, you know, banking software, a lot of it has been in place for a very long time, for better or for worse. Um, and there's sort of enormous amount of checks and balances that go into place before any changes are deployed to that software. Whereas in the crypto space, it appears that a lot of these developers are sort of just deploying code without any checks at all. And there are firms that do audits and things like that, but uh, they seem to miss things pretty often or code changes after the audit and people don't realize it. And then, you know, new vulnerabilities are introduced. But there's also sort of inherent issues with blockchains that contribute to the impact of these hacks and scams, where um, once a transaction has been made and recorded to the blockchain, there is no reversing it. So, you know, if, if you were to get taken for a ride by someone who is selling you something scammy uh, with traditional money, you know, you could usually call up your bank, you could hope that the credit card company might reverse the transfer. Um, there's some sort of protections in place and, and there there's recourse if something goes wrong. But in crypto, that is by design not possible. So if you know someone steals a ton of money, the only real way to get it back much of the time is to convince them to transfer it back, which you know is a difficult argument to make, I would say. Some of the fans tout anonymity as a virtue. Uh, how anonymous are, are these things? It's 
quite an interesting um, setup because everything is public. And so the only security really is whether or not someone can tie your wallet address to your real world identity. But everything you do, you know, every trade you make, every person that you interact with is all publicly visible. And so it's sort of left up to the person to keep their identity a secret, um, which is difficult to do in some cases. Um, And so people sort of come up with these schemes of having, you know, multiple different wallets that they use for multiple different purposes. And some of them are tied to their real identity, whereas some of them are supposed to be anonymous. Um, But it's enormously difficult to do. And as soon as you mess up one time, you know, everything in the history of that wallet is now connected to you. So we've seen, you know, a lot of people having more trouble with anonymity than is advertised. And, You know, we've seen law enforcement track people down. We've seen, um, in some cases, these crypto projects that have been hacked have been able to identify the people behind the hacks themselves without law enforcement. So it's really quite a bit more traceable than people believe it to be, it seems. How big is this thing? We see, you know, numbers quoted like $2 trillion in market cap. What's the reality? It's hard to say. I mean, a lot of the numbers that are floating around are not representative of real cash that's gone in. I mean, in crypto, you can kind of just conjure quote unquote money out of thin air. And so the the values that are being quoted are often not the same amount as you could, you know, realistically transfer out of a project. So I think it's difficult to get a good number for it, but it's safe to say it's far lower than the values that are being thrown around. But on the other hand, we are seeing an enormous amount of, you know, venture capital money, retail investor money going into this space, probably not in the, you know, to the to the level that you're describing, but it is more than you might expect or hope would go into it. Well, it's quite a quite a racket, really. I mean, you say, I'm going to create a currency. Uh, it's worth some arbitrary amount of money. And uh, it's like you're God and you just created value out of nothing. Uh, and then people believe you. I mean, <laughs> what is this thing built on? Right. I mean, there is nothing really backing the money, uh, quote unquote, money that is, you know, trading hands here. Uh, in most of the cases, most cryptocurrency is completely predicated on the belief that it has value. And there is nothing behind it. And, you know, some people who advocate for crypto will make these same arguments that that's true of stocks, or even, you know, that's true of gold is it's only got value because people believe in it. Um, which I think is not a very convincing argument. I mean, you know, stocks pay dividends and there are companies behind them that are doing actual work that provides value to society. And I don't think the same is true of, of crypto. Well, and with the real currency, you can buy lots of things with it, but you can't buy much of anything with <laughs> right. Bitcoin or Ethereum. Now, the related worlds of NFTs and Web3, let's talk a bit about those. A lot of artists tout NFTs as a way of getting control over their work and getting all the value out of their work. What's the truth of that? It's kind of an interesting subject. Um, you know, there has been a real issue, especially for digital artists, in um, selling artwork in a way that sort of uh, conveys the same type of value as a traditional form of artwork. Because, you know, with a digital artwork, you can re- reproduce it any number of times. You know, anyone can download it and print it out and hang it on their wall if they want to. And so it's been difficult for artists to sort of enjoy the same amount of demand that traditional artists and, you know, people, painters and people working with physical media enjoy. And so some of them have come to believe that NFTs are the, are, you know, the answer to this problem and that they can sort of represent unique digital works using NFTs. But unfortunately, they're sort of being drowned out by the larger group of people who are engaging with NFTs, who are interested in them specifically as a speculative investment and don't care very much at all about what the actual image or artwork associated with it is, which I think is why we've seen the 
the proliferation of some uh, sort of objectively unappealing pieces of artwork <laughs> in the NFT world um, that fetch some of these enormous prices. The first time I looked at uh, the Board Ape page, I was just like, people are paying money for this crap? I mean, it was just, it was just stunning to me. Right. Yeah, I think the the use of, of NFTs for, you know, digital artwork in the sort of traditional sense of the term is actually a, a fairly small group of people. Yeah, I was about to ask, are any actual artists making any actual money off this? There are actual artists uh, that are engaging with NFTs, but in my experience, they don't tend to be the people who are making a lot of money. There are some digital artists who have made some money out of NFTs, but in most cases, they are able to make money because they have an established reputation already as a digital artist, and they can sort of work with that reputation and build these speculative markets around their work. It doesn't tend to be uh, a bunch of new artists sort of breaking into the space and making money based on the quality of their artwork. And then Web3. What exactly is that? Web3 is a very nebulous term and, in my opinion, is mostly a marketing term that's been used to sort of uh, encompass any technologies that have blockchains involved with them. And the argument is that there will be a new version of the web that will be built around blockchains, unlike what they see as the current version of the web, which is um, controlled by large tech companies and big players like Facebook and Twitter and Google. Um, so the argument here is that is that the new iteration of this web will be based on blockchains and everyone will sort of interact in this oddly financialized uh, manner where there are tokens associated with your actions and you know, data is all stored on blockchains. It'd be still very hard to avoid, you know, Amazon Web Services and the rest, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's kind of a huge barrier here where, you know, most web browsers can't natively interact with the blockchain and most websites can't be hosted on the blockchain directly. And so there are a lot of these intermediary services that people are having to use. And it's pretty unusual to find a quote unquote Web3 project that doesn't have a centralized server somewhere, you know, to host their website or something like that. We're seeing these Web3 communities um, very much centralizing around projects like Discord, which is Everything there is stored on Discord servers, and it's quite web too, you might say. Finally, the social philosophy around this world. I mean, it seems not exclusively, but um, heavily libertarian, anti-state, private actors, voluntary contracts, unregulated, Wild West kind of an atmosphere. Now, it's certainly a precedent for that in Techland, but um, is that a fair conclusion that the, a lot of the foundational philosophy behind it? Absolutely. I mean, the early cryptocurrencies, you know, Bitcoin. Um, was very libertarian in its founding motivations, you know, and, and the people who created a lot of these early uh, cryptocurrencies were, you know, explicitly libertarian. Um, so it's not surprising to see that the founding philosophy has very much continued to be a major part of the space. And so, you know, even people who don't necessarily hold what you might consider to be traditionally right-wing libertarian beliefs hold a lot of these sort of cyber libertarian beliefs around how the government shouldn't regulate technology or it shouldn't regulate digital, uh, you know, transfers of currency and things like that. It's very much baked into the whole system. Yeah, I get a little worried about how some of these folks might react to a, a very much more serious crash in this world. Um, <laughs> they have a lot of guns. Absolutely. And a, a lot of anger, and it could be very unpleasant. Right. And I think there's, you know, a pretty good argument to be made for that. A lot of people, you know, in the cryptocurrency space espouse very extreme beliefs in some cases. And, you know, it is a little bit worrisome to think about what, a, what an extreme crash might motivate some people to do. That was the software engineer Molly White. Check out her informative and amusing blog, Web3 
Digit3, not Word3, web3isgoinggreat.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Terrest by the Finnish composer, and I hope I'm not mangling this too badly, Kaija Sarayo, performed by the flutist Clara Chase with the International Contemporary Ensemble. Next, White Power. The horrible racist massacre in Buffalo has excited a lot of commentary, much of it rather ahistorical and shallow. As a corrective, here are some excerpts from an interview first broadcast in October 2020 with Kathleen Ballou, a historian who specializes in the field. She's an incoming associate professor of history at Northwestern and author of Bring the War Home, a history of the white power movement from the end of the Vietnam War into the 1990s. An important point Ballou makes, the white power movement is not a typical political organization. It's decentered and leaderless. Actions like mass shootings may seem to be conducted by lone wolves, but in fact that's how the movement works. It's united not like a disciplined political party, but by a common worldview, a common language, and a common set of inspirational texts, like the Turner Diaries. This originally was a 33-minute interview. I've edited it down to around 21. I hope it doesn't sound brutally truncated. We open with a discussion of terminology. Ballou prefers the term white power to white supremacy, and here's why. Kathleen Ballou. The danger is that if we say simply white supremacy or white supremacist, what we end up creating is a false idea that white supremacy has to be overt and violent, when in fact, I think scholars have now come to a broad agreement that white supremacy should be thought of not only as the fringe, but as many mainstream beliefs and systems that structure our society in much more insidious ways. And then there's a problem with the phrase white nationalism, because I think people hear that phrase and think of kind of overzealous patriotism, when in fact, the nation in white nationalism is not the United States. And hasn't been for a very long time. The nation invoked in white nationalism is the Aryan nation and in, is in many ways fundamentally opposed to the United States, at least insofar as the United States is imagined as a place of inclusive participatory democracy. So how would you periodize this movement? Obviously, violent armed white supremacy, whatever you want to call it, in the long sweep of history, it has a very long pedigree. The Klan goes back into the 19th century, Jim Crow. How would you periodize this? Coming down on that periodization question is exactly where we see the shift away from um, what I would think of as vigilante violence in support of state or systemic power and a shift towards what I think we can more properly think of as revolutionary violence, white supremacist violence that is interested in the overthrow of the state. That shift is really a post-Vietnam 
moment. Um, and what we see in that moment is a shift towards anti-government violence and also an expansion of a willingness among these groups and activists to form bridges that hadn't been there between groups that had been warring. So in other words, I mean, it's a moment of sort of cohesive bond building and social movement organizing between groups like neo-Nazis and Klan that had been at odds before this moment, but from the 1980s forward have really seen themselves as fellow travelers in the project of white power violence to overthrow the government. The white power movement um, seems powered by a potent cocktail of racism, xenophobia, and anti-communism. How would you weigh those various strands? And how, how do they work together? Um, how important are they in, relative to each other? So the answer to that really changes over time. So what we see in the late 1970s is that anti-communism stands up as a narrative for people who have some amount of racist belief, but have become aware that it is not anymore a publicly palatable kind of way to express a political opinion. And this is perhaps especially true in the South, where there's a long history of conflating anti-communism with fears about race mixing and social equality. So what we see is anti-communism being used as a recruitment tool such that the movement can figure out some public support and then also reach activists who can be recruited into more overt racist ideology. As we move forward into the 1990s, um, past the end of the Cold War, anti-communism, of course, becomes less of a major narrative for these groups. And there's actually a bit of a crisis about this, I think, not just on the fringe, but in the American polity more generally, where you know, a lot of people who had been going around with this very intense feeling that the end of the world was coming. And this is not a fringe belief. A lot of people carried this around with them every day in the fear of the bomb, the fear of the end of the world at the hands of the Soviet Union. Um, I think historians have not adequately described this moment of transition where the enemy in that narrative disappears with the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But the belief in the end of the world doesn't just disappear. People are sort of wandering around a especially in the 90s, with uh, an apocalypse in search of an engine. And that series of beliefs sort of lays open this path of recruitment into the militia movement and anti-government violence in the 90s. I was surprised to learn um, t uh, in the 70s, these uh, white power guys were uh, very obsessed with protecting the border. So this, this fear of immigration has deep roots uh, in, in this kind of thought. Yes, it does. And one way to think about that is that there's a host of viewpoints and social issues that I think most people would think of as simply conservative issues. So anti-immigration, anti-gay rights, anti-feminism, anti-abortion are all familiar to kind of a general educated public, I think, as part of just a conservative slate of issues. But to activists in the white power movement who have that same set of issues, they mean something very different and much more dramatic, which is to say that white power activists opposed all of these same things, not just because of sort of like the typical set of conservative reasons, but because they saw all of these as a apocalyptic threat to the white birth rate and therefore as tantamount to racial annihilation. So they oppose immigration, not because of some abstract fear about, I don't know, the changing character of the nation, but because they thought that immigrants with a higher birth rate would come and outnumber white people, leading to intermarriage and the end of the white race. And within this ideology, that is 
the same thing as the end of the world. And for some of these activists, they even imagine this as a possible road away from their holy belief. And, and there's, there's a large segment of this movement that believes their role is to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. For those activists, um, something like a rising immigration rates or even you know, what we usually think of as the soft change, that is the demographic transformation of the nation or a state or a county or a community from majority white to minority white, they see that as apocalyptic threat. They see that as the end of the world. You mentioned Lewis Beam. He takes up a lot of your pages. Interesting character. Who was he? What was his importance? So Lewis Beam is an interesting figure because his writings are so capacious that he really gives a full accounting of his own belief system and his own career within the movement. And also he's the author of several texts, including Essays of a Klansman, that become pivotal for many other activists. So Beam served two tours as a Huey helicopter gunner in Vietnam, was profoundly moved by his experience there, or at least said he was, and then came home and spoke about his experience fighting the war to sort of illustrate his feeling that the government had betrayed him and not allowed him to win. He's articulating that view um, quite coherently for many, many, many pages, many essays. He joined a Klan group and then um, eventually joined up with uh, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which is the organization helmed by David Duke. And then he starts a series of paramilitary training camps in the Galveston Bay area and bombs a local radio station, as you know, um, and then goes on to commandeer a campaign of the violent harassment of Vietnamese fishermen in the Gulf. There is a response to that that bars him and his group from paramilitary clan training and, and briefly shutters that, that camp, although it reopens later. Um, and at that point, Beam relocates to Idaho, joins Aryan Nations, and becomes a sort of roving ambassador and leader of the white power movement. He's involved in the order in the mid-1980s and um, has an enormous intellectual impact on the movement as a whole. And uh, one of the things he helped devise was this idea of leaderless resistance and the, the cell structure. Could you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. This is one of the most important sort of things that happens in the white power movement in the early 80s. So leaderless resistance is it's cell style terrorism. So it's it's familiar probably to your your listeners because it's very much of a piece with something like cell style terror that we see in Islamist extremism, except this happened in the early 80s. So this predates a lot of that command structure. They picked it up for some Communist Party structure too, right? Indeed, although the Klan will not tell you that that's where they got it. They they insist that this comes from military counterinsurgency practice because, of course, they, they don't want to be borrowing from the left, although I think you're right to say that they are, in fact, doing that. So the white power model is simply that um, one or a few activists can work in a cell um, without communication with other cells and without direct ties to movement leadership. So they adopt that structure largely because the Klan had really struggled with infiltration by FBI and other government agents in the 60s and was deeply frustrated about that. And they also wanted to make it difficult to prosecute when people were arrested for doing violent action. But Actually, the legacy of leaderless resistance, which I think was largely unanticipated and I think is much more catastrophic, has been that the white power movement has not been understood as a public safety threat the way that other terrorist movements have. Instead, what we get are a string of stories about quote unquote lone wolf attacks 
And we don't usually get the, the sense of the rising tide of white power violence. So even in the present moment, what we get are stories about Christchurch as an act of Islamophobic violence, El Paso as an act of anti-immigrant violence, Pittsburgh as anti-Semitic violence, Charleston as anti-Black violence. And they are all of those things. But all of those gunmen were also white power activists with a clear ideology, a clear set of social interactions. And, and you know, this, this backing ideology, it's not lone wolf violence. I'm speaking with the historian Kathleen Blue. So this makes you know a very interesting organizational structure. It's almost like there's you know, joined not so much by what we'd think of as a traditional organization, but instead by a common worldview, uh, a sensibility, a set of texts like the, te- the Turner Diary is very important to them, or you know things that um, they learn on the internet. Um, well, they were very early adapters of the uh, the bulletin board systems, you know, in the '90s. So um, this is not a, a conventional kind of organization for a political movement. Right. And even with the bulletin boards, you know, they're using a thing called LibertyNet on the proto-internet as early as 1983-84. And part of the reason we know that is that the order, which stole millions of dollars from armored car robberies and other kinds of robberies in the Pacific Northwest, went around the country distributing money to other white power groups of all stripes. And then Lewis Beam went around teaching everyone how to get online with the Mac mini computers they had just purchased with that money. So we see that that social network framework was in many ways pioneered by this movement. And on LibertyNet, you see things like ideological tracks and assassination lists, but you also see things like personal ads. So this really was social network activism decades before Facebook. There's an important turn around 1983 in which they went from working with the state to being anti-state. What happened? This is interesting, and, and part of why it's significant for us now is that this happened in the middle of the Reagan years, um, at a time where left and center observers might have thought that this movement stands to gain from supporting politics. But what this movement concluded is that the kinds of changes it wanted were too radical ever to be delivered by mainstream politics. In other words, they they talked about things like a return to slavery or the reestablishment of Jim Crow or an apartheid system. They didn't think they could get that kind of change from even the conservative political system. So what they decided instead was that the government had betrayed them in Vietnam, they would never get what they needed, and they made a call for a move from the ballot to the bullet. Now, that will be familiar to historical-minded listeners from, of course, um, the Black Panther moment, and the people that I write about, of course, would never cite Malcolm X. But there is this moment of extremism that is kind of broader in the same time period, and they are taking a page from that book. Gender is very important here. The movement seems extremely male, almost cartoonishly macho. Yet uh, femininity is important as well. Uh, Women uh, do the social reproduction for the white nationalists um, and also uh, the symbolic role of white womanhood. Talk first about the role of women within these organizations. Sure. This is one of the big surprises from the archive, because I thought this is going to be a story about paramilitary masculinity. That's how the movement kind of presents itself. It turns out that the glue that holds all of these different groups together across, you know, all regions of the country, across different kinds of space, um, there's a lot of very different kinds of activists brought into this movement. And the glue really is women. They're doing an incredible job at mediating 
all of the ties between these leaders. It turns out that what you have to do is follow the stories of which group had a leader whose daughter married the leader of a different group. We see things like double weddings that are meant to symbolize the ties between different people. We see shared childcare, shared curricula. And then, of course, there's a bunch of women who say over and over again that they're not activists in this movement, but are doing a lot of things that I think we would recognize as activism, like writing their own publications, um, leading auxiliary groups for women, trying to get men to change how they see women, even within the movement, and then doing a lot of the sort of um, underside of even the most violent activism. So Although women are not usually involved in things like assassination schemes, we do see them doing things like driving getaway cars and helping people dye their hair to evade the pursuing agents and things like this. It's profoundly driven by women's activism and women's work. That is, as you say, sometimes in tension with the symbolic deployment of what the movement would consider the pure white female body and the importance of women's reproduction. This is a movement that is so deeply fixated on the birth rate and the perceived hyperfertility of people of color that white women's reproduction is really prized and really heavily policed. So we do see those two things happening, sometimes in tension and sometimes not. And even when women are being activists and trying to become what they would describe as race warriors in their own right, they often say things like, I'm going to be a race warrior, but only after I've had two to three children to help with the birth rate first. How much of it was a backlash against feminism, the feminist movement of the 70s? Was any of uh, the masculinity driven to violence by that? Oh, certainly. Feminism is one of the ways that this set of people sort of saw their world is under attack. Um, and certainly this movement also understood feminism to be one of those boogeyman threats against the white birth rate, the logic being that if women went back to work, they wouldn't be in the home, they wouldn't be having white children. This is part of the, the broader set of conservative women's activist movements in this period. And I think um, the work of Michelle Nickerson is absolutely critical here because um, as she writes, people on the left ranging from uh, you know, historians to sociologists to journalists have often missed women's activism and therefore missed the whole conservative movement. Um, certainly that's part of the reason we have such a delay in the historiography around the new right is because so much of it was about women's grassroots activism. And she argues that part of the reason for that is that we who are doing the writing often have this idea of activism and feminism that matches our own sense of what that might look like. Um, and so when women on the right say, I'm not an activist, we have taken them at their word. But, but the thing is that they are in fact doing political activism. They're doing this work. And by paying attention to and taking seriously the life stories of the women that are doing all of this, it really shows us how this movement has operated in times that we have not given credence to in the past. Well, it seems like a lot of these guys were not interested in uh, creating a mass movement. They were interested in spectacular actions that could perhaps catalyze a race war or somehow cause the broad white population to wake up. But it was not like they were trying to create a mass organization. Exactly. And they're not interested in, well, I mean, you put your finger right on it. And thank you very much for bringing that point up. That means that when we see an action like the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, that's not the end point of what they're trying to do. It's not like, haha, we've accomplished it. It's finished. That action is designed within this movement 
to, as you say, awaken, quote unquote, other white activists, um, awaken the population of white people. They believe that they can use guerrilla acts of violence like that to start an insurrection. And what about the role of the Turner Diaries, a very significant text, work of fiction, but it's almost as if it's a textbook for them. Yes. Well, and and that's exactly why it's important, is it fills this imaginative problem for the movement, which is to say they have to answer this question somehow about how can they possibly hope to do this? How can they possibly think that this tiny fringe movement is going to take on the most militarized his- super state in the history of the world? So what Turner Diaries does is lay out a plan. People who have read Turner Diaries will realize really quickly that it doesn't have the staying power it does because it is a work of excellent fiction. But it's because it fills this imaginative void. It it shows a path forward by which a group of guerrilla white power activists can wage war, undermine the United States, and then figure out how to achieve the overthrow of the government and eventually an all-white world through mass genocide of people of color. Now, I've seen interviews with you where you're reluctant to comment on current events because you haven't seen the archives. So I'll, I'll ask the question anyway. Um, the kinds of things we've seen in the Trump years, you know, the Charlottesville, uh, the Portland stuff, how continuous or discontinuous does that seem with the history you studied? I do have to give the caveat that we don't have the kind of archive that I have for that earlier period. But I think I think the historical archive from that earlier period can really tell us a lot about what we're seeing now. And the reason is that this is the same movement. This is continuous. There hasn't been a coherent stop or a major prosecution or a change in law and policy that has resulted in a decline. And, um, you know, one thing that's changed from um, some of the earlier interviews I've given about this book is that we now have a series of whistleblowers coming out from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI saying that not only is white power violence the greatest threat for domestic terrorism that we now face, but that we have not allocated sufficient resources to what they see as a growing problem. We have to listen to those people because they have the archive. They have the real-time evidence. They have the monitoring and the surveillance resources, and they're sending the warning bell. Um, They're sending up the flag. So are the people that work in de-radicalization, who talk to people who are trying to leave this movement every day and say that they can't scale up fast enough to help everyone out who wants to get out. And I get all these emails from teachers and librarians and parents who see people being radicalized and they don't know what to do. We don't have a coherent set of resources to point those people to, to help young people when they encounter this kind of ideology in the real world. So put that together with what I think anyone who follows any of these stories can see is not just the Proud Boys or Boogaloo or parts of the militia movement or Adam Waffen or the base or this string of white power mass shootings. What we have to do is read all of those things as part of the same story. I think it's evident that we're in a moment of rising tide and increasing momentum and that it's urgent for all of us to do the work of opposing it. Well, in the past, we had governments that were you know, partly committed to prosecuting or investigating, although they didn't always do it with great enthusiasm or success. But now we have a president who's encouraging them. Yes. And, you know, even in the most generous interpretation of the remarks about the Proud Boys of the debate, even if he meant to say stand down, um, I think it's critical to understand that just because he has the power to call these activists to stand by. And I mean, 
people need to know that it's not just the Proud Boys who heard that call. It's all of these activists who heard that call. Just because he has the power to call them to readiness does not mean he has the power to stop them once they get going. I think that we will see additional activity um, in the weeks and months to come. And I, I think we are at a moment of absolutely critical intervention. That was Kathleen Ballou, formerly of the University of Chicago, and now about to move out to the suburbs and become an associate professor of history at Northwestern. Her book, Bring the War Home, A History of the White Power Movement, was published in 2018 by Harvard University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Density 21 by Edgar Varese, performed once again by Claire Chase. I try not to repeat myself too much with my music, but with this, as with the earlier piece, I couldn't resist. Till next week, bye.